brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Future of Working Families. Teamsters. 1932.org. This episode of the House of Mystery is brought to you by Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. LegacyFoodStorage.com Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Good on Morning, 102.3 FM, FM Riverside. And 105 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Joe Goldberg. It's a serious day when Joe's in the room. I'm in, I'm in the room. I'm never so serious as I drink my diet beverage and come off like you have on a writing binge. Diet beverage? I thought you were into the bubbles. Uh, I do this. This is it's a diet beverage made on soda stream. Recommend the soda stream. I, I, I live on it. <laughs> I can't help it. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I need something bubbly like you. I need something around me that's bubbly. Yeah, yeah I'm not bubbly enough for you. Jeez. Well, that's why we have to have Bruce on, because Bruce, as you know, his nickname is Everfest. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, I, that's what I've heard, but I, I didn't want to say that. Well, let's find out. Let's ask him, you know, Bruce, are you a professor? Well, I've, I've had enough Diet Coke to make me that way. <laughs> well, well, now, uh, Bruce is our guest today. He is Bruce. Obviously, I don't want to say it, but Mr. Bruce Borges. He is so gorgeous. His new book, The Bitter Past, A Mystery, is the Porter Beck Book One. So uh, thank you for being here first. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, Bruce, so what drew you into this world of writing, this this unstable, insecure world of writing? Why would you do that? 
that's a great question. You know, that's the first time I think anybody's asked me it that way. <laughs> and I don't really, I don't really know the answer to that, except that I'm, you know, I'm partly insane. Only partly. Because you're right. It is, it's unstable and it's uncertain and it's, uh, filled with, I mean, it's a land mine of, uh, or a, a minefield of, of, you know, potential hiccups and explosions and, uh, uh, sometimes not a lot of fun, but, but, you know, for all of us who do it, I think we enjoy it a great deal, and uh, I'm happy to be spending this part of my life doing that. I, I just, before we get into your book, I was just wondering when I was reading your bio, did you ever go after your old guidance counselor that said you'll never be an astronaut? Because it's because of that kind of reinforcement, you're not an astronaut. Right, right. And, uh, you know, I, I wish I, I kind of wish I could have you know, found him. I'm sure he's, he was pretty elderly, as I recall at the time, and that was, you know, 40 plus years ago, so he may be long gone, but uh, it would have been nice to say, you know what, you're right, I didn't become an astronaut, but this is what I'm doing. Well, you know, you could you can kill him off in your book. That's true. I might do that. <laughs> That's what you got to do. Yeah. I might do that. Okay, so now you are in the world of mystery here, so you've got Porter Beck, book one. So who is Porter Beck? Like, how do you describe that character? So Porbeck is a recently retired Army officer who uh, spent his time predominantly as a foreign area officer, which means that he was predominantly a specialist in certain parts of the world and did a lot of intelligence work. And he has returned uh, recently to Lincoln County, Nevada, where his father had been the sheriff for several decades and where he has recently taken over that job. It's a very rural county. Uh, Lincoln County is a real place. Um, it sits just north of Las Vegas in Clark County. Um, it has about 6,000 people and it is 11,000 square miles. So it's about the size of the state of Maryland and the sheriff's department there, which Porter Beck is, is running, um, is, uh, uh, comprised by, you know, anywhere from 10 to 15 officers at a time. So it's a huge area to cover geographically with a very small, uh, or as I like to refer to it as a Boy Scout troop-sized department. So you have this character, Porter Beck, and you have Nevada, and you have the topic behind your book, which you can, which you should, you can explain. Did you have the topic of the book first, which is kind of the way I, when I look at it, or did you have your character first? You're trying to when you're trying to fit a character in a story, do you have a story that's going to find some characters that them build as I'm writing a story? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I actually had the story idea first. And, and what I was thinking was, you know, I've been in Nevada most of my life, uh, and a lot of people aren't very aware of that part of our history, which a good part of the book involves, which is the 1950s and the atomic testing that went on above ground in the Nevada desert, about 75 miles north of Las Vegas, in what is now still a very highly secret classified area. So I had this idea that, you know, I'd love to just dive into that time period. And I always wondered, you know, I wonder how much the Soviets were trying to get, find a way into the Nevada test site to spy on our atomic program, just like they had been at Los Alamos and some other places. Um, but I didn't want to write uh, a nonfiction book because there are plenty of those about that era and about what we were doing out there. And I thought that, okay, well, if I write this entirely in the past, um, it might not be as relevant to, you know, younger readers today. 
So I thought, I'll write a dual timeline story back in the 1950s and, and mostly in the present day with this sheriff in Lincoln County. And that's how I came up with his character. I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, you know, partly in the present, I need a character, a, a very strong protagonist who's got some good background, who can investigate some things, a very smart guy. And um, uh, that's kind of how I arrived at coming up with, you know, kind of initially sketching out. So was historical fiction your target type of book when you started it? You know, no, I, I, I would say yes, um, partly. I mean, I certainly wanted to write a historical fiction novel, but I really wanted it to be a mystery that involved, you know, some some murders, some espionage, because that's that's what I love to read historical fiction too, um, that aren't parts of those other genres. But um, you know, I thought this, this could be a good combination. So I knew that when I started outlining the story, I needed something very compelling to happen in the present. And so what I did was I created beginning or the opening chapter to be to involve this murder of a retired FBI agent, kind of a, just a brutal, gruesome murder of this guy. And in Lincoln County, there is not a lot of murder. I actually think the opening line in the book is, we don't have a lot of murder in Lincoln County, because that's true. Uh, so it's, it's quite an anomaly to see this there, and it really kind of sets some things in motion um, and, and kind of points Porter back when, he, when he's at the crime scene some of the things he sees there kind of pointing back to his previous life in the army and his time spent in Russia. So all of that kind of tied neatly together for me and in coming up with how this story was going to involve two different timelines and kind of meet in the middle. Well, there's a couple of questions there. Let's go with the two timelines. How did you uh, handle, juggle, doing a mindset of two different timelines and the, I guess, the themes, topics, or issues or story development for each one of those periods? that are connected to each other. Yeah, I hadn't done one of those yet. I'd written two previous novels, um, which are entirely different, not even mysteries. But um, I, I, I had read a lot of, uh, especially when you see how the author is able to bring the past and the present together, or whatever two timelines they might be writing about. So I knew that was going to be a challenge, and I almost it's almost like writing two different books. I suppose that even though I wrote it in a linear fashion, meaning that I started in the present and I began with a couple of chapters about this murder and things that were going on. And then I jumped back to the past and I wrote it, you know, kind of going back and forth between the two timelines. I probably could have written it the other way and written everything in the, in the present uh, on the one side and then everything in the past and then figure out where I was going to combine them. It just, it just worked for me that I didn't have to do that, but it is like, writing two different books. So it's it's interesting to to juggle those things. And as you guys know, when you write about things that happened in the past, you have to be careful about what you say, not only from a, a research standpoint and getting the history correct, but all of the incidental things. Um, and, you know, what kinds of weapons did people use? Um, what kinds of technology did they have available to them? You know, we had regular phones. We didn't have cell phones. Um, so there are, there are all of those things that you need to constantly check on. And I spent, I spent much more time researching those parts of the past 
than I did on researching things that I had in the present. That's really important because you've got to get the, the feel. Because there is a lot of young people, and if they read it, they won't. They never lived it, so they don't understand a lot of things an older person would that's right. been around. So you've got to explain a lot of things. Your, your character itself, what tense? We were talking about this before um, going on air. First person, third person, like the di different situations and where you're writing from. How do you write your characters? You know, I am a huge fan of Craig Johnson and C.J. Box and a number of other guys who write about the best in contemporary times. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, all of Fred Johnson's Longmire books are written in the first person. And that's where I started. And that's actually where I ended up for Porter Beck. So all of the present parts of the book are narrated by him uh, in the present tense. And I found that that worked well, most especially uh, to reveal how kind of clever he is in his thinking. So he's, he's just to give you a little bit more background on him, he's, he's a sharp guy. He, he comes, again, from a rural part of Nevada, and Nevada generally, outside of Las Vegas, you know, is a pretty rural state. So he comes from kind of a ranching community and, um, you know, a lot of animals. Uh, but he's, he's not any kind of a country bumpkin. He's extremely intelligent. He speaks several languages. He um, thinks on his feet very well, um, but he also has uh, a physical kind of a disability. Um, and I, you know, I'll, 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 I'll tell you basically what it is. Um, and he learned this, uh, and it's eventually what drove him out of the army a little, a little bit before he wanted to get out. But he has night blindness. He cannot see in the dark. He can see pretty darn well during the day, pretty normally. But when the lights go out, where it's very low light, everything narrows to, you know, very much like tunnel vision, and he, he cannot see. So it presents some unique challenges to him in a law enforcement role. And initially in the, in the book, um, he's thinking that, you know, he hasn't told anybody about this. Um, so he's hoping that no one else <laughs> notices. But it becomes pretty obvious at a certain point. How much, how much of your own self do you think goes into that character? You know, I think... I tried to impart what I believe my sense of humor is into him. Um, and I think most, most of my, most of the readers, uh, who, um, either reviewed it or just informally told me their feelings on the book who knew me said, yeah, okay, he's got your sense of humor. Um, which is really why I just wanted a guy who was kind of fun. He's not, he's not a stereotypical sheriff in any way, shape or form. He doesn't wear a uniform. Uh, he pretty much wears a, you know, blue jeans and a Carhartt jacket uh, most of the time. Um, so he's he's kind of outside the what you'd you know, you'd see in a, a typical rural sheriff role. Um, but uh, you know, I, I tried to give him some sense of myself, but I didn't try to. I didn't really focus on um, trying to make him like me. I mean, he's got experience that I don't have. I was not in the military. Um, but I just tried to make him a guy who was uh, very quick on his feet, uh, very intelligent, very observant. Well, Bruce, let me ask you a question. Anybody who listens does ask questions that help me. Because I'm doing research right now on some topics I don't know. You're in, the, in Nevada, and you have a topic of you know, nuclear bombs and deaths. And how, how did you research? Did you go and talk to the sheriff? Did you go 
talk to nuclear physicists? How, how much did you go out? How much did you talk? How much you got into the book? Yeah, it was, as you can imagine, it was an essential part of this book because, he, you know, I, I knew what I thought was some of history buffs. I knew quite a bit about that period in our history and, and being this close to the Nevada test site um, uh, and knowing quite a few people that worked out there in the past, I, I had some good background. So I spent, first of all, um, yeah, I took a few trips up to Lincoln County. I met the sh- uh, sheriff there at the time. He's, so I, uh, I did that. I spent a lot of time up there kind of, you know, physically, visually scoping out the geography. And I've been there quite a few times before, but getting a better physical sense of the area. And then with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, in learning more about uh, our, our nuclear program at the time out here in the Nevada desert, which, again, you know, most people, I had no idea that between 1950 and 1960, we set off, uh, you know, 100 nuclear bombs above ground. And so uh, I wanted to learn more about all of those different tests that we did and when they happened and how big they were in terms of nuclear yield um, and what the effects of those explosions were. You know, most of us have heard what has happened with the people who lived downwind of the test site, which predominantly was mostly east of, of the site, a little bit south as well. Eventually, that radiation expanded and, and spread all over the globe. But for the people who lived due east of the site, um, there were some some effects that they are still suffering and are being compensated from the government because of that. I spent time talking to those people. I went out to eastern Utah. I, I called some people. I got some uh, great information from the university here in Las Vegas and their archives department who had actually interviewed uh, downwinders over the years and kept those recordings because a lot of those people have passed on. Um, but I did the same for, for people who worked out at the test site during that time as well because their recordings were captured. So I got a great sense of the security uh, that was in place at the time and what they did, the measures they took to keep people who had no business being out there from, from being being around the site um, and, and what physically uh, they had out there at the time. Um, and I spent a lot of time at fantastic museum. If you ever get to Vegas and you want to you wanna spend some time learning about that stuff, it's, it's a great place. Uh, and they were super in, uh, super helpful in, in kind of guiding me uh, around the place and going through their old documents and helping me gain a better understanding of, uh, you know, the types of things that and, and events that happened out there in that decade. And that's actually how I stumbled onto the real project, an actual nuclear test that took place in 1957 that I used in the book. So how much of the research we did that big, fat first draft and ended up in the really skinny last draft? That's another great question. So as you well know, um, whenever you write historical things and you do all this research, you feel 
you feel obliged or compelled to share it with the world. And you, you don't really have that opportunity. There was so much research and things that I discovered that, in as you said, in my first draft, it was all in there. And then by the time I got around to the third or fourth draft, I had cut a significant portion out. And then by the time my, my editor at Minotaur Books got a hold of it and sent his thoughts back to me, we, we chopped some more out and just kept it to really what does the reader need to know about that time without boring them. Because, yeah, while it might have been fascinating to me, some of that detail is probably a little bit too much for, you know, the, average reader yeah becomes an information dump right it exactly becomes, yeah becomes too much you could always put that on your website you yep know, oh and I, I i have done that to some extent yeah wait so you plan this like this is book one so do you kind of know how many books you're going to do and kind of have an outline of where you're going with your character and the stories well yes i do i uh i originally had a two-book deal uh to kind of bring porter back to life um, that's been expanded, I think, predominantly because of the reaction that we've gotten on the first book. So there'll be multiple Porterbeck books. Uh, it remains to be seen how many. Um, and we've got some other things in the works that I can't really talk about at this point. But, um, yeah, they're going to be around for a while, and I have some really good ideas. As a matter of fact, the second book, which is called Shades of Mercy, uh, comes out in July. So it's already in the can and is actually going out to... Um, some folks for early reviews now. Um, and then I'm currently about 100 pages into the first draft of book three. A writing man. Yeah. <laughs> well, I feel so so like a slob. <laughs> <laughs> we, don't we all feel that way? I saw like, how prolific some of these people are, and I'm just going, oh, my God, I just can't do anything remotely that fast. Don't you sleep? Bruce, are there themes inside these books? Is there something? I mean, it's historical fiction, which... It lends itself to say we need to learn something from history. Is, is that in there, or are these more story plots? Well, I think, I think yes. In, in book one, and, and keep in mind that the only book that right now is going to be historical fiction is book one because it has that uh, past timeline that runs parallel to the, the present one. Uh, my, my next few books probably will all be in the present, at least as I've outlined them so far. But um, I, I think that's probably how it's going to progress at this point. Bruce, can I ask a question about your secondary characters? How do you fit them into the main character in the story? Were they part of fiction, historical fiction, or were they just some of them just built to be support network or to show the character and development of your main character? Well, I, I, I you know, for the, I obviously had to invent the entire world in the 1950s, uh, and all of those characters, I, I really have one central character in that past timeline who, yes, has a supporting cast, um, but I, 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 you know, it, it wasn't something that, um, I had in mind when I got started. I just knew that I needed a main character who, who, and I'll tell you who he is. He's a, he's a Russian spy. He's a Soviet spy who comes to the United States in 1955. And so I, I just tried to build him as I thought uh, would make sense for the time. And so kind of going back to your previous question, the uh, the theme that I have in book one really is that, without spoiling anything for anybody here, um, that a lot of who we, you know, the decisions that we make in life uh, seem to be dependent on where we're born and where we're raised. It's a matter of geography. And patriotism 
is another thing that kind of is in the eyes of the beholder. You know, everybody who puts on a uniform for their country probably believes that they're a patriot and they're doing the right thing. And most of the time, those lines do not get blurred. Sometimes they do. And I tried to incorporate that into the story uh, because I think it's very relevant, not only to what happened in the past, but even today. Well, let me continue off my selfish questions. When you take that, those themes that you're building for those characters and sort of the twists and turns that are sort of inherent in this book, the, what happens, who is who is what doing what, what's wrong with them, how did you sketch those out? How, were they there? Did they develop? Uh, did you plan them out, or did they just come from somewhere? Because I'm working on that right now. Yeah, I, 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 I tried to plan them out the best I could ahead of time. So I, I create typically very detailed biographical biographical sketches of all the characters, even the, the minor characters. So I really have a good sense of what kind of person they are and where they come from and what they think and how they feel about certain things so that I can maintain some continuity throughout the story. And I don't, I don't have a character do something that seems to be out of line with other things that I've, I've said about him. So I, I did my best to create all of them ahead of time and know very clearly in my mind who they were. Um, that didn't always work out. I did make some adjustments as I went. But for the most part, that cast of characters remained pretty true to what I had imagined at the beginning. How about the idea of uh, the process of revealing the twists and turns? Well, that happened a little bit more organically, I think, as I started writing. I did, I did my best, and again, I'm I'm one of those plotters um, who who outlines a great deal before I get started on a draft. And I did my best to to try to figure out, okay, where do I need a twist? Where do I need a turn? Where do I need a surprise? But then, as, as you guys know, you, you start writing and you get into the weeds, and all of a sudden you think of something that actually works better. Um, so I, I ran into that a, a few times, and that that's great. I mean, I, that, that part of the process is wonderful that you can discover that along the way because you you, as much as you might want to or you try to, you simply can't envision everything ahead of time. You kind of have to let your characters breathe some life into the story and then kind of see what happens. So how did you kill your guidance counselor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, that's coming up in, in book five. Yeah. <laughs> A long, long, slow death. Well, listen, so why is Porter Beck a sheriff? Like, why, why, why you do that with your main character? Why does he have to be a sheriff? Is there a meaning there? Um, not, not, not really. Um, he became a sheriff because he um, leaves the Army, as I mentioned, um, a little bit before he really wanted to. It's basically because of a, the, his medical condition. And he comes back, and again, it's, there, there's not a lot of work in Lincoln County outside of government work. There's the rail system that goes through that transports a lot of goods back and forth. There's mining um, and there's people who work for the state in various capacities, uh, or, you know, there's those specific counties. Um, there's not, you know, and there's some ranching, obviously, that goes on and, and becomes uh, a bigger part of my that world in, in my next few books. But um, he becomes a sheriff mostly because he's had a great deal of experience now in, you know, working in the Army and doing a lot of intelligence-type work. So some of this 
you know, that kind of discovery and investigation and research uh, is a natural part of who he is. And the best place for that is the job that his father held for 30 years, which is sheriff. How do you, how do you experience these characters? Like when you're writing the dialogue, are you are you hearing them or seeing them or what goes on in your your brain? Yeah, I try my best to hear them, and and I I I, I actually try to envision what those people look like. As a matter of fact, when I when I do my outlines, I I physically describe each character in my biographical sketch, and then I try to find a photo of somebody online, whether it's an actor or somebody else that I think that person looks like. Because that helps me um, decide how they speak and how they act, uh, if I know what they look like and how they move. Um, so uh, I, I, I try to do that the best I can, but I really do try to hear them as, I, as I'm writing. I, I go back a lot and I read it out loud, especially the dialogue parts, um, to see if, does this sound like Porter Beck or does this sound like Sana Locke, uh, who's a big part of book one. So, yeah, that's that's how I do it. And and your female characters, can can you get into the heads of females and write them as a strong character and and lead? <laughs> well, I guess that depends on who you ask. If you're asking me, <laughs> I would say yes. Um, but but it's funny, um, and, and I'm sure you guys have run into this. I I got a few reviews from women who said that they thought. Porter Beck was misogynistic and kind of crass in the way he he thinks about some of these female characters. Well, first of all, there's nothing in the book, I just want to set the record straight, that's disrespectful to women at, at all, that they perceived. The opposite of that is interesting to me and a little disturbing, but I did my best to kind of paint all of the female characters in my story as very strong women. And yeah, sure, I'm a guy and I don't you know, I'm not a woman, so I, I uh, some of that I have to uh, imagine what it would be like and how a person would act, how a female character would act. But but I also run it by some very uh, female beta readers that I have to say, and I say, tell me if if I'm doing something here with this character that seems out of whack. Well, I I don't understand why you know if your character has some tendencies to be a certain way, that's who they are. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't think you should have to purify people to fit a narrative, no matter what it is, you know? Because characters are characters. They're not all, not everybody in this world is perfect. And uh, just just Joe, of course. You have to say just Jim. I thought you'd go first. <laughs> people are people. You know, we're flawed. We make mistakes, all right? And yeah. some people want to be aggravated by that, and that's why you have those kind of people to aggravate them, to, to, to bring to light those characteristics of other kinds of people. Good and good. also to think of them not in 2024 time frames, but especially going back in the past, you're thinking the 1950s time frames. And, yeah. and, and those, those, those types of themes, that there's your theme, is, is you know, no, nobody's perfect. Yeah. yeah, and to be real, because when you do cover something in the 50s, man, I'm, I'm working on stuff now in the in the 50s and 60s, and I'm watching a lot of shows and game shows and live shows and news shows from then, and how they treat it and talk to females then were, was it's just, it's pretty pretty amazing. I'm surprised at how it was done, um, and everybody sort of thought it was fine. Right. So, but that's, if you're going to be a realistic sort of point, it's time, time point. It's, you've got you to gotta be that way. You can't make everybody 2024. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and my character, Porter Beck, is he's a mid-40s guy who's unmarried. He's unattached. Um, when he sees a beautiful woman, he thinks about things that and kind of has an inner dialogue about how he observes her. It's not something he says out loud. He's not making jokes or saying inappropriate things. But he's thinking, you know, about, for instance, you know, where he and this uh, female FBI agent. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You should get married. Um, and it's interesting that some people took offense to that. But it's realistic. I mean, I, I t- turn on a What's My Line from 62, and a beautiful girl comes out and signs in. Everyone's whistling in the audience and, yeah. and, and hooting and hollering, and, and everybody thinks it's fine. Nobody, Nobody's offended. It's just that's the way it was. So if you're going to bring someone back to that time, so that's how it was. It, it, I don't know. I'm, I'm not big on purifying or changing things because it's not realistic. Well, it's the battle between... You know, perception, reality, and being cliché. So as I'm writing along, I'll write cliché in red next to a character or a spot saying, this is just being easy. Yeah. Then you, then you turn it into reality and perception. And don't cancel yourself as you're writing. You're writing your own book. You're writing your own story. But that's the, that's the battle. So as long as you're not cliché. It's like, oh, there, she checks her mirror and the makeup and make the... Well, if that's what the character does, that's what the character does. I have a character who has, has characteristics, but... That's what they are. That defines who they are. It's some of that little piece. Not because I'm being a guy writing a female person. It's just that's who that person is. Like a guy would worry about what knife he carries or whatever. His, you know, I'm going bald. Well, too sorry about that. Yeah. In fact, it's a terrible situation. Yeah. Anyway, so that's how I. That's how I feel. I feel the tension. Do you feel the tension as you're writing it? I do. I feel, yeah. yeah. Everybody's standing on your chest. Your readers are standing on your chest, looking over your shoulder, going, Ah, no, no, no. That's right. <laughs> well, how does that how does that experience change you? But like when you go through a series like this book, and all the research, all the work, you put it out there, and then you do get kind of reviews. You do get you, there's a lot of noise around, and um, so how does each book do you think change you, or do you you know? And plus, you're living through your characters. You're reading them out. You're being your character for a while. Does that experience kind of alter you in any way? No, I don't think so. I, I think, like you said, I, I, I try to stay uh, realistic with my characters and have them live real lives and experience real things and have real feelings um, that are human. And um, I am cognizant not doing anything that is going to be overly offensive uh, because pretty much I'm not that kind of person. Um, and I don't want my characters to be that way. I might, you know, I might create a character at some point that, 
is very well. Actually, in, in the first book, in the Bitter Past, I do have a, a deputy sheriff who's he's a racist, um, but that, that's who he is, and I'm I make sure that he's true to his character. Um, but I try not to worry too much about the reactions of a very few readers. Um, they have their own tastes. I appreciate that, or I respect that. I'm not going to please everybody. Not everybody is going to like, you know, my book or, or books, um, and that's fine. But a lot of people do, so I'm I'm happy about that. And I see. Okay, so you've got nomination in the Left Coast Crime thing that's happening in Seattle and stuff. Does that change how you continue to write? Does that put any pressure on you when something like that happens? I think, quite honestly, the more pressure I feel is comes from my publisher. And, and now having, because I'm writing this series and I have a contract for it, you know, I have the deadline. And uh, when you're writing uh, kind of for yourself, you don't have to worry about those things. So I feel a little bit of pressure occasionally, um, especially while you're trying to market your current book or the next book that's coming out and balance that with your writing time. So that's where I feel pressure. I don't, I don't feel any change or... Um, you know, it's it's nice to have that nomination, um, and and I hope we we garner some others along the way. But that's uh, I'm not focused on that at all. Right? Yeah, it's kind of one of those things. I think the less you pay attention to all that stuff, um, the better. You know, you can focus focus on what you're doing rather than the stuff around you. You know. Yeah, because it is easy to get lost in that stuff. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Go online and get to an argument with someone. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, listen, so that, that brings up, do you have a website? Do you do social media? Do you like to interact with readers? Do you get involved in that? And if so, how do people get a hold of you? So they can go to my website, which is just bruceborges.com. Um, and there's plenty of, uh, you know, there's a way to contact me if they want to reach out. I get a lot of people who do that uh, pretty often. Um, and I have a newsletter that I do on there uh, occasionally, three or four times a year. Um, but I am pretty active on social media, as Joe knows. I'm on uh, X and I'm, I'm, you know, very uh, present on Facebook and uh, a little bit less on Instagram, but I'm there. Um, so yeah, I mean, I try to do all of the things to, to have it, and I, I, I literally love it when somebody reaches out to me and says, I "Read your book, and this, these are my thoughts on it." I love that kind of back and forth, whether it's online or it's in person at you know a book signing or some other event i i actually did a library event here in las vegas a couple of weeks ago and uh one person showed it um and it was it was interesting because you know they were expecting more but it was the first beautiful day we had had here in some time so i think most people were saying i'm, I'm not going in, indoors i'm going outside and uh but it was nice to have this one gentleman there and we talked for an hour because um, he had already read the book and everything, and he's just a library goer. But I love that kind of interaction. I thought you were going to say he was a guidance counselor. Ah, <laughs> uh, terrible. So, so what's next? You got the second one in 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 the bag, so to speak, and and or you've got something else going on. What are you working on now? Yeah. So, Shades of Mercy, which is book two, comes out on July sixteenth, and it's a it's a really neat story that starts with the. The hijacking of a highly classified military drone um, over Lincoln County, which is, again, right next to Area 51, a very secretive area that uh, is controlled by the federal government. Um, and then it kind of uh, it, it, it bleeds into a few other areas uh, and involves 
a girl named Mercy Vaughn, who's 16 years old, who's currently incarcerated at the Lincoln County Youth Center for committing some online um, computer crimes, uh, which seem fairly minor on their face, but it turns out that there's a lot more, there's a lot of people who are looking for her, and maybe she's not really who she says she is, and Mexican drug cartels and a foreign government uh, are also involved, uh, so it's it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Do you, do, you, do you stay away from conspiracies, or do you get into them, or, you know, like Area 51 and things like that, do you throw all that in there as well to kind of add tension, or do you stay away from that? No, I, I, I actually try to throw some of that in. For instance, in, in The Bitter Past, I have a character who's a kind of out-of-favor investigative journalist um, who is referred to by the locals as X-Files um, because he's one of these guys who, um, you know, has... has uh, fully invested himself in the idea that there are UFOs being uh, hidden by the federal government out in the Nevada test site, and we actually have alien bodies. And and he's one of those people who has fallen into and, and fully accepted that conspiracy. I don't I don't judge his beliefs. I, I do treat him skeptically um, because most people do treat those people skeptically. Um, but he's a very important character, and some of the things that he has to say are very interested, are very interesting to Porter Beck and, and some other folks. So uh, I think that's going to continue. And, and fortunately for me, the Nevada desert and the fact that about 80% of all the land in Nevada is managed by the federal government in, in some way, shape, or form gives me lots of chances and lots of opportunities to get into some of those conspiracies. Do you stay away from headlines? There's kind of stuff in the news, um, modern stuff, or do you, you don't want to touch that? I actually like headlines, um, and I use them quite often. I've used them in other books as well to at least uh, be a starting point for a story, and then I kind of take it and go, okay, well, how can I fictionalize this, and how can I make it something really, really interesting um, because a lot of headlines that we see about, you know, especially that involve technology around us, um, these things are, are, you know, probably going to be huge for us at some point. So I like to use those to whatever degree I can. Well, that's interesting. Well, anyway, um, so we'll have everything up on our website so people can find you easily and, uh, you know, and your book and your website and stuff. So appreciate you being being here. Uh, your book is called The Bitter Past. It's a mystery, quarterback book one. And, of course, our guest is the author of that and many more. Check out his books. It's uh, Bruce Borges. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Bruce. prepared legacy food storage the best way to protect your family is by being prepared go now to legacyfoodstorage.com use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off quick go now back to the show with Alan Dave because I am with 
James Lepwelk, who's been nominated or won about every award that's out there for his crime writing. And he's going to be reading from Face of Greed. Yeah, thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. Uh, it's nice to be nice to be back here again. Yeah, I'll be reading from Face of Greed. It's the uh, first novel in a new series uh, featuring Detective Emily Hunter. And uh, I'm just going to read a, a, a little taste from the first chapter to kind of give you a little bit of what Emily's about and what she's facing and what she's up against, uh, even before the investigation really starts. So we'll, we'll start with her story here. Chapter one. Emily Hunter learned to be wary of open doorways when she rolled up to a call. In the five years of her assignment to the Detective Bureau of the Sacramento Police Department, she knew bad things often lurked in the dark behind partially open doors. When it was the front door of your own home at seven in the evening, the anxiety bit deep. She crept close, listening for anything or anyone who didn't belong. Her hand tapped the grip on the glock on her hip as she climbed the stairs. The lights were on. The television blared an infomercial for a product promising the end of dried skin. Mom? Emily had moved her mother in with her four months ago after the 70-year-old retired teacher suffered a series of memory lapses and household accidents. The advancing scourge of dementia at Connie Hunter was unable to live a safe, independent life in her own home. Mom, are you there? Sheila? Emily called out for the caregiver she'd hired to stay with her mother while Emily worked long hours as a detective. When no response came from within, Emily's subconscious went to a very dark place. She'd investigated a series of home invasions in the city where gangbangers targeted the homes of elderly people to terrorize and loot money and prescription drugs from the weak and the powerless. The front door hadn't been kicked in. There was no sign of a forced entry. Emily entered and scanned the living room. Except for the missing mother and caregiver, the home appeared normal. She turned off the television set and heard the kitchen faucet running. A quick look into her remodeled kitchen found the water running over a sink full of dishes, but no one there. She shut the water off and spotted, spotted Connie's GPS-enabled pendant on the kitchen counter. She held the tracker in her hand. Then Emily heard the front door slam, followed by the metallic click of the deadbolt. She heard the voices before stepping into the living room. Sheila had draped a comforter from the sofa over Connie's frail shoulders. Her mother was wearing a light house coat and a pair of fuzzy pink slippers. She shivered as Sheila rubbed her arms, warming her. What happened? Where were you, Emily asked. I found her wandering down the street near the park, Sheila said. Connie looked small and fragile in the house coat, one too thin for the cold spring air. Mom, what were you thinking? It was time to go. Connie said with a shiver in her voice. Go? Go where? Home. Emily bit her lip. It wasn't the first time her mother mentioned going home or the need to do something somewhere else. Sundowner syndrome, the doctors called it. A little gift that came with dementia. Confusion, a sudden surge of anxiety, and a feeling that she was lost. And in a way, she was. Mom, this is home now, Emily said. I swear I turned her back, my back on her for a second while I was finishing up the dinner dishes and she slipped out. She hasn't pulled that one before. What happened? She seemed a little more confused than usual, but I couldn't tell me why. I was, she was watching her shows, and then she just walked out. I can't be responsible for her wandering off. You might want to think about moving her into a facility. I'm not putting Mom in a home. Emily draped the GPS locket around her mother's neck. Why weren't you wearing this? It's not mine. Yes, it is. Remember, we talked about it. 
Connie didn't respond, but the look behind her eyes was one of confusion and uncertainty. Emily's work cell phone vibrated in her pocket. Calls after seven in the evening weren't weren't telemarketers who should be banished to a leper colony. These nighttime calls invariably meant someone suffered a beating, a rape, another murder in a city with no shortage of victims. In earlier years, she wondered if she didn't answer the call, if she let it ring until it stopped, would the crime still occur? Could she prevent another victim from ending up in some desolate field? A few hundred calls later, her naive hope evaporated, and she came to terms with the fact that the flow of victims in the city was never ending. She stabbed the answer button. Hunter here. Evening, detective. Hold for the watch commander, a woman's voice instructed. While Emily, Emily waited, she plotted to the office in the rear of her home and removed a fresh notebook out of the bottom drawer. She wrote on the first line of the first page, 1935 hours received a call from the watch commander. Hey, Emily, Lieutenant Ford here. Initial report is a home invasion gone bad. One victim dead and one injured. Another one? Where are we talking about? The location is, Emily heard rustling paper in the background. Here it is. It's 1357 43rd Street. That's a nice neighborhood. It used to be anyway. I'll call Medina and get there as soon as I can, Emily responded. I called him first. His name was up on the rotation. Javier said he'd meet you on scene, Emily. And there's something else you need to know, Emily fell silent. The chief is already there. He's taking a personal interest in this one. Oh, sweet Jesus, that's never a good sign. Emily tossed the notebook on the desk. Yeah, I mean, this is a high-profile case, so watch your back. I appreciate the heads up. I'll be there as soon as I tie up something. She disconnected the call and tried to figure out how she could work the case remotely. Maybe her partner, Javier, could hold up his phone and live stream the crime scene. Who is she kidding? Sheila? Emily found her mother and Sheila parked in the living room watching a television show that was popular in the 60s. Connie had calmed and her face was relaxed. I can stay, Sheila said. I overheard the call. I think she's calm now. It won't be long until she's off to bed. I'll keep an eye on her. Thank you. Call me if there's any problem. Please make her wear that GPS pendant. I'll figure something out. As Emily changed into a fresh blouse, the thought of the chief wandering the crime scene kept surfacing. What drew the top cop out to a crime scene after dark wasn't going to bode well for the assigned detectives. Once in her dark blue Ford Crown Victoria, Emily let the defroster attack the rapidly forming condensation on the windshield. Sections of the window cleared and showcased the obnoxious blue Christmas lights her neighbor clung onto four months after the holiday season. They blinked on and off all at once, stabbing a constant strobe into the detective's bedroom window. Another flimsy excuse for her insomnia. As the car warmed up, Emily got out and scraped a thin film of ice from the driver's window with the side of her hand. She stole a glance down the quiet street, gathered her shoulder-length dark hair in a ponytail, and stepped back into the shadows away from the car. She followed the fence line to the neighbor's glowing, stale yuletide shrine. Emily pulled the seventh and tenth small bulbs from their socket and partially rethreaded the maddening electrical orbs back into the strand. The entire string blacked out, and she basked in the electric silence without the hellish current knifing into the night. Then she returned to the car backed out of the driveway and wondered where her, when her lazy-ass neighbor would recognize he'd become the victim of a drive-by bulbing. Emily made a right on J Street and sped to 46th, where the glow from the blinking red, blue, and yellow lights of emergency vehicles exacted some sort of revenge for his neighbor's display. Residents of this upscale enclave didn't take the car 
park their Benz, Jag, or Maserati on the street. Their precious status symbols were locked away in garages or behind walled courtyards. She recognized the silver crown in front of her as the mayor's car, and she crept forward until her bumper came within an inch of the mayor's sedan, effectively boxing the politician's ride again against a fire vehicle with a bright red and white sign warning, keep back 100 feet. The chief and the mayor at the crime scene, frickin' awesome. And that's where I'll leave it. That's great. And I'll tell you what I'm thinking about when, I, when I'm listening to this. This is something I'm working on is your use of senses as you're writing. All those characters and the world they live in. Tell me how you incorporate, how you build out this, the senses and the characters in the world that they live in. I'm kind of a visual writer. I kind of have to immerse myself in that world. And this one was a little bit easier because the whole home invasion was based on an actual, one of the first murder cases that I worked on. So it was the home invasion gone bad. The, the homeowner was, was murdered in front of his family. What if that story unfolded differently? And that's kind of what stuck with me all these years was try to interpret that and, and retell it in a different, in a different outcome. But uh, yeah, you, you get immersed in the, in the, the sensory details of it. I think that uh, I enjoy reading that and I, and I hope I, I'm able to bring some of that into my work. Well, it shines in this in this book. Oh, thank I, I you. think everybody should grab it to, to learn and to and to read and be entertained by it. It's, it's fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you. We interrupt our programming. This is a national emergency. Important details will follow. Are you prepared? Legacy food storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Go now to LegacyFoodStorage.com. Use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off. Quick, go. Now back to the show with Alan Dave. Well, we're having some delicious cocktails down here, and we've been joined by James D. of Hammond. If I'm correct, James, you'll be right reading your short story, There Shall Take Up Serpents. That, that is what I'm reading. I'm, I'm a contrarian among the group today. This is a short story I wrote a couple of years ago, just a quick hit in and, out, in and out, so to speak. All them bodies crowded under the tent mixed with July humidity. It's a heady brew, the air thick with sweat and the hope of salvation. Not that anyone notices, because Brother Josiah has been speaking in tongues for the past five minutes, and this enraptures the crowd. They are hearing words intended only for God, the Bible states. They eat this up, Josiah told you once, but you gotta start slow, though. On a week-long revival, you can't blow your whole wad that first night. Give them a little at first to get them talking to the neighbors. By the last night, there's a full house, and you're talking gibberish, and they'll think you're a prophet. He took a long slug from a pint of Kentucky gentleman. That's where the big money comes in. Tonight's packed, just as he promised. Folks jammed in tight, spilling out across the county fairgrounds where you set up. Brother Josiah's traveling show of faith. You joined last summer after you got out of Green River. The firebug you bunked with telling you about his cousin. The road preacher always looking for help. Hiring ex-cons is what they call good optics, Josiah said. Shows we're committed to helping save souls. The truth? Ex-cons understand what's happening here. They're not about to let a little faith get in the way of a good thing. The plate passed around once already. Came back heavy. Cash. Checks. A mix of jewelry. Some junk. Some pieces that'll fence out nicely. 
It makes you think about the faith it takes to pull rings off your finger to give it to a stranger because you believe that's what the Lord commands. To be fair, Brother Josiah is charismatic as hell. Young and movie star handsome. And you've got to have a bunch of suckers beyond just the hardcore old school believers. Those bastards will die someday. And to keep this working, there have to be fresh faces in the crowd. That's how you end up with these little fundamentalist girls out there. Their long hair and denim skirts to the ankles and innocence in their eyes. Makes you remember how you used to believe. Right up until the moment you didn't. You start thinking about the blonde girl in Alabama last month. The one Brother Josiah said had a blessing from the Lord, who he called a jubilee spirit. Josiah's hand on his shoulders, they knelt and prayed, and everyone called to the Holy Spirit for his will to be done. You watched it from Josiah's camper, smoking a cigarette and wanting the night to be done. The service ended and the crowd dispersed, and the next time you saw that girl, she was coming out of the camper, her hair a tangled mess, her face wet with tears. Josiah in the doorway, no shirt on, said they'd been studying scriptures and to make sure she got home safe. Tonight, Brother Josiah raises his Bible into the air, and the Gospel of Mark does say they shall take up serpents into their hands, and it will not hurt them at all. That's your cue. It's Friday night grand finale, what everyone's coming to see. You bring the boxes to the front of the tent. Josiah offers thanks and a wink no one else sees. He's been using the same old cotton mouths for years. Got him from another preacher, pulling the same grift. Aged and defanged, and you keep them hungry and lethargic. They're harmless as milk snakes, Josiah says. All just for the show. He reaches into the box, brings out the first snake, and lifts it above his head. It writhes and hisses wildly. More activity than Josiah's ever seen. And there's a second of surprise in his eyes just before the snake sinks fangs into his flesh. You know how you'd let those old snakes go watching them slither off to freedom before you found two fresh cotton mouths, ones that were young and full of themselves. You think about the way that young girl cried as you drove her home, the tears you cried once you stopped believing. And as the frenzy of the congregation swells, the serpent strikes Josiah again. Hallelujah. Yeah, I was following along online as you were reading, just to be a just to be a cheater, <laughs> and uh, and and I'm going. I'm thinking to myself, and I'll ask you the question. I have so many questions on this because I'm looking at short stories myself. Is uh, what do you want people to get out of this short story using the symbolism that you used? That's a really great question. Um, you know, I really think we need to question everything. Uh, I I come from you know I grew up in Eastern Kentucky, Southern West Virginia. I uh, grew up a lot in fundamentalist religions, and I, I know the power that uh, that can have. And you see it even today in uh, the, the way that that religion plays a role in politics today. And I really think the best thing you can do is question whether or not it, it should have that role and the role that it has in the control of other people's lives. Well, I mean, you, you can see the visual, visualize that. And you can hear the words, and there's some there's some depth there, and I'm greatly appreciating the small small amount of space. So thank you very much. Thank you much. You've been listening to the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me?
KCAA was an exciting announcement. Want to hear NBC News or KCAA anywhere you go? Well, now there's an app for that. KCAA is celebrating 25 years and our silver anniversary with a brand new app. The new KCAA app is now available on your smart device, cell phone, in your car, or any place. Just search KCAA on Google Play or in the Apple Store. One touch and you can listen on your car radio, Bluetooth device, Android Auto, or Apple CarPlay. Catch the KCAA buzz in your earbuds or on the streets, celebrating 25 years of talk, news, and excellence with our new KCAA app. Just do it and download it. KCAA, celebrating 25 years. It's that time of year again. No, not the holidays. Medicare open enrollment. And if you have questions about Medicare, you should talk to the local experts, Paul Berich and Associates. Paul and his agents are certified with plans that are accepted by most of the medical groups in our area. Call 909-793-0385. Their service is free, and after 42 years in the business, their agents are trained to help you pick the plan that's right for you. KCAA is your CNBC News affiliate. We're the station that gets down to business. This segment brought to you by our community sponsor, Vegan Corner of Grand Terrace. VeganCornerWithTheK.com Approximately 3 billion pizzas are sold in the U.S. each year. And Vegan Corner sells their share too. Americans eat approximately 100 acres of pizza each day. Or about 350 slices per second. October is National Pizza Month. Thinking about pizza now? Tired of your same old pizza routine? Then spice up your pizza universe with a more healthy, yet flavorful pizza with Vegan Corner. Vegan Corner doesn't cut corners with their plant-based, gluten-free pizza. And if you don't believe me, ask my uncle Antonio. Oh my, how could that taste good, you say? Lots of people say that Vegan Corner's pizza is amazing. A pizza miracle. All plant-based and gluten-free. No meat, no dairy, no problem. Lots of taste, no trans fat, low sodium, low calorie, no guilt. And lots of love combined with rich sautéed veggies on a tasty thin crust. Oh, so saucy too. It's a pizza miracle. It's vegancorner.com. That's right, a vegancorner.com. Don't forget, it's spelled with a K. Like when people ask you if you want another slice, you'll be sure to say, okay. <laughs> you can order online at vegancorner.com or call 909-370-2644. That's 909-370-2644. Vegancorner.com for Vegan Corner of Grand Terrace. It's a pizza miracle. <laughs> KCAA Loma Linda, your CNBC news station, where your business comes first. NBC News on KCAA Loma Linda, sponsored by Teamsters Local 1932, protecting the future of working families, Teamsters1932.org. It's the Opperman Report, and now, here is investigator Ed 